You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. That music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. And this is Lois Richter on a gorgeous, gorgeous summer day at the end of March. Wait a minute, summer day? It's bright, sunny, and unusually warm. And yes, people are finally coming in not wearing, you know, two layers of clothing when they ask for their tomato plants. And so it doesn't seem like such an unreasonable conversation at this point. We'll get into that in just a moment. It is uh, the day the show airs, which is going to be... April 1st, 2021, it'll be sunny and warm with 83 degrees. Night temperatures. 40. And that's no joke. That's no joke. That's, no, that's right. No April Fool's joke there. It's going to be 48 degrees Thursday night, Friday, 80 degrees and mostly sunny. Friday night, 45 degrees, partly cloudy. Saturday, it's a little bit of a cooling trend and a, and a weak storm beginning to break through and come our way. 72 degrees Saturday, mostly sunny. Saturday night, 46 degrees. Sunday, 70 degrees. Sunday night, a chance of showers, mainly after 11 p.m., partly cloudy, which is going to keep the low around 47. Cooling trend for the first part of next week. Monday is a chance of showers. They're not telling us we're going to get much out of this. It's going to, you know, soften that top inch of soil a little bit. might make it easier for you to break through and plant something, but this is not going to be a, a, a soil soaker, let's put it that way. And Monday uh, will only be about 66 degrees because it's going to be partly sunny. Monday night, slight chance of showers, partly cloudy, 46. Tuesday, a little cooler still, 63 degrees. The extended forecast or forecast discussion shows that thing moving through pretty quickly. And let me see if they're telling us any amount of rainfall. It's just going to be light precipitation. And then Sunday uh, through Wednesday, we're going to have dry weather. As they, they said, Upper Ridging is going to move in over the Great Basin, which means more wind and um, light precipitation during the first couple of days of next week. So not significant rainfall. High temperatures next week will be below normal. Right now, they're above normal. One might ask, what is normal for this, this time of year? Yeah, I'll get that data in a moment. The point, main point of all this is we've reached three milestones that we look for in the is it time to plant tomatoes question. We've reached each of them at least once. We're not staying there, but uh, this is the point where I go, yeah, sure, fine, go ahead, plant your tomatoes. But there's no hurry, folks. We are going to hit 80 degrees and daytime high. That's one of my you know easy things to monitor. We're going to hit 55 degrees at night. We've already done that once. We've had a couple of warm nights. And the soil temperature, which I follow at the CIMIS weather stations, C-I-M-I-S weather stations, where you can gather amazing amounts of data about your nearest weather station. Uh, we've actually hit 60 degrees once. Now we're not staying there, but it's bumped up to that threshold temperature that I'm looking for for tomato plants. So people are coming in, of course, they've been doing so for weeks looking for tomatoes. Well, it is a good time to go ahead and get tomatoes. You can go ahead, in my opinion, put them in the ground. You're about three weeks ahead of schedule if you do that, our usual calendar basis, but everything is a little warmer. And if we do cool off, 
we're cooling off. We're not going to get significantly below average and the tomato plants will be fine. 60 degrees is that soil temperature I like to use for tomatoes. And it could be fun, by the way, to get yourself a soil thermometer if you've got a raised planter and go out and put that in there and notice how your raised planter differs from my garden bed. My garden bed's gonna be 60 degrees. Your raised planter may be a few degrees warmer because of that elevation of the soil. That's one advantage of a raised vegetable planter is that your soil does warm up a little earlier. One of the things that concerns me though is people like to run down and buy all of their summer vegetables at once, their tomatoes, their peppers, their eggplant, their, their squash plants, their mullins, their cucumbers, and, and those plants differ as to their tolerance for cooler soil conditions. And I'm particularly concerned about people buying peppers and eggplants at the same time they buy their tomatoes if they're early birds when it comes to tomatoes because peppers and eggplants like a soil temperature around 70 degrees. They want it to feel more like summer. They want night temperatures consistently above 55 degrees. They want us to have hit 90 degrees maybe once or twice. And uh, we're not there yet. We don't get there until May. If we continue to follow this pattern of the whole season running, let's say two to three weeks ahead of schedule in terms of temperatures and soil temperature, we'll probably get to those temperatures, let's say even as early as late April, possibly early May, and we'll monitor those. And at least for our region, we'll be able to let you know. But I'm always concerned when I see those go in early because my own experience, and I do this every year as a test, is that a pepper plant put in the ground earlier than a pepper plant wants to be put in the ground is set back so many weeks that a pepper plant you plant later does better. And so I always do this, I do this experiment on your behalf. I plant a pepper sometime in let's say late April, and I plant another bunch of peppers in let's say late May, which is when I really think they should be planted. And actually just for fun, I usually stick some more in the ground because I have them all the way in through June. And those later planted ones, the May and even the June planted plants always outgrow and out yield the first ones I put in. And that's simply a function of the gradual, uh, not the gradual, the fairly uh, sudden and rather dramatic in the case of peppers and eggplant, negative impact of cold soil temperatures. So if you buy them, hold on to them, put them out on your porch, move them to a bigger pot, that's why I like to do. I really find that putting them in a gallon can in some nice fancy soil, keeping them on a warm corner of my front porch, they love that. <clears throat> to them, that's almost like being back in the greenhouse where they were born and uh, hold them there until the soil is warmer. But yeah, you wanna run down and start buying tomatoes, go for it. I have to warn you, everybody's doing that. So they're coming in, they're going out, you want this one variety, it's not there this week, well, you know what, hopefully it'll be there next week. Um, as for the other factor, the very low humidity, early part of this week, Monday, Tuesday, and into Wednesday, we've had some very, very dry north winds here. Here in the Sacramento Valley, these occur, oh, every couple months, they're quite, quite reliable, and the humidity on a day like that will drop down as low as, well, on, on Tuesday, it dropped to 10% all afternoon. 10% humidity. So that's desert-like conditions with a wind means the evapotranspiration rate for plants in that kind of uh, on that kind of day is very very high and uh, we had to water our entire nursery yard and we had to go out and check the bedding plants and the four inch pots again towards the end of the day I spent this morning before the show out watering the I don't know hundred or so plants that I have in containers in various places around my driveway 
every one of them was dry. And we're going into, as we record this, another day of not as gusty winds, but very low humidity. So keep those container plants that you haven't really thought so much about during the winter time, keep them well watered. I would guess that your barrel, your big planter is probably bone dry today and needs a very good soaking. The other aspect of this, it continues something we discussed before. We've had a very, very low rainfall year. And just as an example, I've got a couple walnut trees to go out and plant in my orchard. And I went out and I hadn't really thought about this. And I took a shovel and I went out to plant one and I could barely get it into the soil where I intended to plant it. Ordinarily in March, that would not be a problem. There would be, it would have been sufficient rainfall. Once I break through the top crust of soil to dig a hole, I realized I needed to soak that spot before planting. So I soaked it yesterday so I can plant that tree today. That's the conversation we're usually having with people May, June, and on through the summer. Your soil is so dry you'll need to soak it before you can water, before you can plant something. And when I say soak it, I mean at least a couple to several gallons of water because not only has the surface dried off, but with a lack of rainfall this winter, it's dry down below as well. So you need to really wet the whole soil volume you're going to dig a hole in means 12, 18 inches deep, a couple feet across. And then of course, when it's that muddy, you wanna wait back off a day or so to let it dry out a little and become more workable. So generally you're gonna to need to go out and soak the spot really thoroughly a day or two ahead of time before you do a planting project that involves, let's say a five gallon shrub or a 15 gallon tree, because you're just gonna have a lot of trouble getting into that soil with the lack of winter rainfall and the surface drying off to the point that it has now. So last week, we talked a little bit about drought, and I want to alert our listeners to something new that we're doing on the show. Now, we always tell you that you can listen to us on podcasts, you can listen to us streaming. Well, if you go, and of course, on our website, davisgardenshow.com, we have all of our, our shows listed. Now we have archives on kdrt.org, and as of last week, I have begun putting in uh, descriptions of what we might have covered. And last week we covered something about drought because we are in a two-year drought now. And there's a link there that goes to a very useful website. So I just wanted to let you all know that if you want to check out the kdrt.org archives for us, well, you might see something more than you used to see. A little more than a, little more than a five-word description of the show. <laughs> oh, there's not even that on those. I'd have to go back and find the, yeah. the five-word descriptions on that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Anyway. And also, just, just, so, so you, just so you all know, uh, you can also, you know, most of you started following the podcast by the RSS feed that we created at davisgardenshow.com because back in 2005, those were a fairly new idea, and we built the RSS feed ourselves, and so we created that because Cater actually you know, didn't have those things for their shows. You can also, if you prefer, click on the RSS feed there, and what happens with that is you get the show right away, whereas with the other one, you're waiting for me to actually you know, upload it and do stuff. If you're, if you're frustrated by the occasional delays caused by my uh, not getting around to it problem, then just go to kdirt.org, click on that RSS feed, and as soon as the show broadcasts, it'll be ready to, to download to your computer. So you can check it out either way. We continue to maintain, of course, davisgardenshow.com and post pictures and things like that there. But also the kdirt.org uh, webpage has descriptions not just of Davis Garden Show, but That's Life and Jazz After Dark and the 25 or 30 other great programs that are locally produced. And now you're getting to the point where you'll be able to read more about them. And you'll see some very 
very interesting programming there at KDRT. Which brings us to one of those little KDRT public service announcements we like to read. KDRT, and the, I want to say, I, I hope at some point, even just a few months from now, we won't have to read this anymore. But I'm going to read it right now. KDRT and the California Department of Public Health would like to remind our listeners of five easy steps you can take to protect yourself and your community from the novel coronavirus COVID-2019. One, wash your hands for at least 20 seconds regularly. Two, wear a mask at all times when leaving your home. Three, disinfect surfaces. Four, stay home when you are sick. Five, if you're a resident or work in Davis, you can get quick free weekly tests by registering at healthydavistogether.org or you can call. 530-754-TEST. That's 530-754-TEST. You can also learn more at yolocounty.org slash coronavirus. Also want to mention that KDRT-FM is a community radio station broadcasting from Davis, California, which is near Sacramento. It's in Northern California. It's a lovely community. Community radio relies entirely on donations from listeners like you and me, to fund our ongoing operational costs. Your support keeps us on the air. So if you appreciate local community radio, wherever you're listening to us, the unique voices and programming KDRT provides, please consider contributing at whatever level you can. It's really easy. Just visit kdrt.org and click the support button. You will find a range of options, ways that you can help keep the programming that you love broadcasting at 95.7 FM on your local radio dial and live streaming all around the world on kdrt.org. Thanks for your support and thanks for listening to KDRT. And thanks for listening to our show. I really enjoy doing it and it's nice to have people who are listening to us and writing to us. And I know that today we're going to talk about landscape coefficients, but before that I'd like to sneak in a couple of short questions. That'd yeah. be okay, John? And if you have short questions or long questions, you can send them to davisgardenshow at gmail.com. And even if you don't have a question, but you have a suggestion for a topic that you would like us to uh, flesh out for you. Or you're listening in some weird, weird corner of the world you want to tell us about. Or you want to brag on your plumeria tree. Yeah, show us your tomatoes <laughs> that you planted in January in Southern California. <laughs> I, have relative, oh. I have relatives in Southern California. And on my Facebook page, I'll often post things about when we're planting. This is my personal page. You're welcome to follow me. I don't care. <laughs> but... Um, I have a relative who's in relatively frost-free Southern California, and she always likes to respond, oh, you're not putting them in yet? Planted mine in late January. Yes, my father, <laughs> my father used to do that too. <laughs> you know, I grew up in Backwoods, Michigan, where yeah. it's, it's really, it's a, like, we used to joke and say it's nine months of winter and three months of poor sledding, but it was snow-covered all winter long. And so when we moved to California, where it it hardly ever snows, if ever, in, in the valley, and um, and and I took a picture on uh, January first of my front, my doorway in my little rental house, and all <laughs> the flowers blooming, and oh boy, was that that did not go over well. <laughs> my father, my father was a very avid gardener, and I grew up. If any of you know this, the San Diego area, right near UC San Diego. Uh, right near uh, between UCSD and Scripps Institution of Oceanography, where my parents worked. He planted, uh, he was a very avid vegetable gardener. He would plant his tomatoes in January because he could, and he would grow them. They grow so long there, such a long growing season, and they grow so vigorously that he actually would train them up onto the flat roof of our garage. We had a gravel covered 
garage roof as is not uncommon in desert and low rainfall areas. And it had that white gravel on it, so it reflected heat. La Jolla is a very pleasant place, by the way, but it's mild all the time. It's really never as warm as a tomato really wants to be in terms of flowering and fruiting and giving the yield that you're after. So he would train them up onto the top of the garage roof where they would fruit better. And they would fruit all season. He would climb up there to pick the fruit. We had to finally kind of put a stop to that when he got into his 70s. But uh, he would get his best yield down there where it's foggy every morning until noon or 1 o'clock. And then the fog rolls in again like 5.30 or 6. Uh, he's in that, he, he was in the belt. I grew up in the belt where you can see or smell the ocean, as we used to say. And so it's always that cool, constant, uh, uh, moderated temperature. He never got the yields that we would get. I, he would come up here and see my tomatoes that I planted four months later. If he came up in late summer, he would see the amazing amount of fruit that we get in this climate we have. But that was how he did it down there, was he had to deal with this incredible, rambunctious vine growth, and he did it by simply training them up onto, onto the roof. So wherever you are, wherever you're listening, you adapt to your local situation. And I would gloat somewhat being as far north as we are and as unrelentingly sunny as we are about how much more production I got. So his turnabout was to call me up on whichever day in January he chose to go out there in his shirt sleeves and plant his tomato plants. Thank you, Dad. <laughs> okay. Okay, so let's start with this question. This is from May. Uh, hi, Don and Lois. What are your suggestions for vines that are evergreen in the winter and that could stand summer heat in the western side of the yard? Right, and so we are in, we are in, oh, you want to read another question? We are in, uh, we're in USDA zone 9, I guess, and we're in sunset zone 14 here in uh, Davis. So you're in luck because uh, I can, you, you can go look online at an 11 page uh, list I have of, of vines for our area. If you happen to be in something equivalent to us, is USDA zone 9, sunsets 8, 9, or 14, you can go to redwoodbarn.com. <clears throat> and over on the right side of that, that's my business website, you'll see a little link that says, what grows here? I did that for a Master Gardener presentation I gave a couple of years ago, and I've continued to update it. It's based on a database, but it's not a searchable database. It's a series of lists. And so you can look at them, and you can scroll through the one about vines, and you'll come to, well, first evergreen vine on that list is Bougainvillea, which is really only partially evergreen in our climate zone. Yes, it does grow here. Uh, let's just start with that one briefly, because I get a lot of questions about Bougainvilleas, and I've got more people buying them every year. They're really a USDA zone 10 plant. Zones, let's say 15 to 24 uh, by the sunset designations. They love heat, they love our summer temperatures here. And your west facing exposure would be great for that. And it will be sold to you as an evergreen, but it's a subtropical evergreen, which is a sort of a unique category in that crowd because well, they're evergreen where they aren't subjected to freezing temperatures. Here, we get cold enough in a normal winter to basically defoliate bougainvilleas. It's not a proper deciduous process like a normal deciduous vine has. Let's say a, I don't know, Boston ivy or something which goes into the fall and gets the trigger by the shorter days and the temperatures and forms an abscission layer and drops its leaves just like the trees do. No, a bougainvillea is trying to keep growing and then it gets below 30 degrees and the leaves get damaged and many of them will fall off. So it fits your criteria, except that it won't really be evergreen for you completely. However, I should mention, it will take that heat, and it'll take that west exposure, and it'll bloom beautifully. So if you don't mind a thorny plant that isn't really fully evergreen and might be badly damaged in a severe freeze, 
Bougainvillea is certainly worth a consideration. Other evergreen vines, some of them are really, really, really rampant. <clears throat> there are a couple of the trumpet vines that are functionally evergreen that are not overwhelming, like the blood red trumpet vine. Another trumpet vine that we're particularly fond of here is the Pandoria or Bower vine. A couple different vines that have that common name. So look for Pandoria jasminoides. Let's take a brief segue about that jasminoides here. It is the species name of a number of vines. And whenever you see oides as part of a, the Latin name, that means like a. So jasminoides means? Like a jasmine. Yeah, and it's the species name of star jasmine, Trachylosperm of jasminoides. It's the species name of white potato vine, Solanum jasminoides. It, it confuses people as, almost as badly as common names do because they go, oh, is this a jasmine? So no, it's like a jasmine. <laughs> it's another case where the name is a little confusing. So Pandoria jasminoides resembles a jasmine only in the sense that it's a vine. I mean, that's really about as far as it goes. It's actually a trumpet vine with very pretty flowers. It's not a rampant trumpet vine. It's a well-mannered, vigorous trumpet vine. And there's a, quite a spectrum in that general category of what we call trumpet vines. Some of them I don't even like to sell because they'll take over your yard and sucker profusely all over where the roots are. That's the regular Campsus radicans or trumpet creeper. Others I'm perfectly happy with selling. And this one, Pandoria jasminoides, which comes in pink-flowered and white-flowered versions. It has a light, sweet smell that you walk up to to smell. Um, and I think this is important. If it's going to be on a walkway or a place you walk through regularly, star jasmine would grow and fulfill all your criteria, Trachylospermum jasminoides. But I would say the population, based on my experience as a retailer, is about five to one people who love it, five people who are overwhelmed by it and don't love it, one. But if you're one of those one, it's really annoying to have star jasmine all over the place. And it really is all over the place. I mean, it's one of the most widely planted vine slash ground cover plants in our area. Uh, so if you like star jasmine, fine. But if you want a more gently fragrant vine that you would go up to and smell the flowers and go, mmm, that smells sweet, Pandoria jasminoides fits that criterion. Um, you know, again, star jasmine would also work there. But how about if you wait till it blooms? and go smell it somewhere and see if you really want that right next to your path or your arbor or your front door, you know, all the time for the six weeks that it's in bloom. And then there are the real jasmines. I mean, jasmines are certainly uh, plants that we can grow. The one that's not hardy is the one that everybody knows if they've been to Hawaii or places like that, the, jaz the picake, the, the, what we often call true jasmine. It's a misnomer. It's a wonderful plant but it's very tender. It's not even as hardy as a bougainvillea. It would definitely die outdoors here in USDA zone nine, sunset zone 14. But there are other jasmines that do grow very well. Jasmine polyanthem, which is sometimes called the pink jasmine because the, pink, the, the buds are pink. A very vigorous vine, the kind of thing you're going to about every three years have to prune back real hard because it'll just become a giant tangle. It has a powerfully fragrant flower as well. I've not encountered as much objection to its fragrance, but it's quite potent and it's beginning to bloom now in garden centers. So you can go experience Jasminum polyanthum now and see if that's a fragrance you would like. I've had it run all over the place. It's one of those ones that sends out branches that you don't notice running across the ground, which do root here and there. So be aware of that when you plant it and do keep after it. <clears throat> excuse me, but it is something that would make a very attractive vine with a very fragrant flower. And there's another one that we just brought into our nursery, which has got a yellow flower that's much more lightly scented. So there are evergreen jasmines out there as well. 
And the other group you're likely to encounter, and well, you know, there's lots of other vines, and you can check out this list at redwoodbarn.com. But the honeysuckles, I get asked about them. I usually want to talk people out of them. Again, they're one of those worst mistakes I ever made in my garden category plants. <laughs> and uh, almost all of those are vines, honestly, vines or species roses that have just gotten away from me. And honeysuckle, the Japanese honeysuckle, which I'm sure listeners in the Mid-Atlantic and the East Coast are just going, oh my God, no, don't plant that. Uh, it can really, really, really take over. In a confined setting where its roots can't escape and where it can't fall on the ground and root and, and go berserk, honeysuckle is a wonderful plant, but it's extremely vigorous. And I would, I would be reluctant to use it in that situation. There are other, honey, other honeysuckles that are very well-mannered. There's some very nice ones, the gold flame and a couple of others that are maybe 10 to 12 foot vines, which have lightly scented flowers. They're deciduous, so it didn't, doesn't meet that particular criteria, but they would be better mannered plants uh, than the Japanese honeysuckle that's the one you're most likely to have recommended to you at the kinds of garden centers that don't give consideration to the long-term maintenance of your property. <laughs> Is that discreet enough for you to see that? <laughs> That's very discreet, Don. I wanted to mention something that I I'm actually haven't looked at your list. So I'm not sure it's there. Yep. But there was one that really impressed me. It was on a, a farmhouse on the west side, and it was an evergreen clematis. Yeah. It was wonderful. Yeah, um, there's one, one species of clematis, yeah. evergreen, clematis or clematis armandii. It's extremely vigorous. Uh, again, this is a vine that can grow 30, 40 feet with no problem, but it's evergreen, unlike all the other clematis, which are beautiful but deciduous. And the evergreen one blooms first. It's uh, in our area, it's the earliest of the, of the genus to bloom. White flowers, um, they're not as big or showy as the other type, but there's so many of them, it's just amazing. And they're, they're scented, they have a sort of a lemony scent. And uh, it's a great vine if you have space for it. Now, for just a small arbor, I'd be concerned about it because it's, it really wants to run 40 feet down a fence. Uh, so, you know, give that some consideration. In our area, before we got our better water, it tended to burn with the water quality we used to have in the Davis-Dixon woodland area when it was laden with salts. It got a very unattractive burnt leaf tip uh, all over the vine. <clears throat> so I never sold it because it just never looked really good, even though it grew fine. You know, it was just a cosmetic thing. That problem just for local listeners has gone away because we now have a we now get our water from the river not the ground for the most part most of the time and so clematis armandii becomes an option for those of you who want a very vigorous evergreen vine uh, something that's come on the market more recently are the tacoma vines which are being sold under the name cape honeysuckle again common name problem it's not a honeysuckle at all it's actually more like a trumpet vine and it's more like a sprawling shrub and there's a lot of plants that are in that category they arch they sprawl they <clears throat> plant it on their own they would just be sort of leggy things that go out several feet but if you just tie them up onto the structure they suddenly become an attractive and discreet vine-like plant they're not a true vine but they are something that can be used like one and there's a bunch of new ones on the market and tacoma uh, orange and red and yellow that are um, uh, much more compact growers. So keep an eye out for those. But again, you'll have to do a little work to get it up onto that structure because it doesn't really want to climb. It just wants to, well, sort of like a bougainvillea, sprawl all over the place unless you give it some guidance. One that you may be tempted by, <clears throat> and that's fine as long as you're aware of how vigorous they are, is the whole fascinating genus of passion flowers. The passiflores are evergreen. Oh, no, 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 no. 
Some of them are very vigorous. <laughs> Some of them, most of them are very vigorous. Some of them um, sucker like crazy and go all over your yard. A few of them are much smaller, more compact plants. I'm just going to leave it at this. Before you buy a Passiflora, read about the particular variety. And actually, where you're listening to us is going to make a huge difference. Because here in USDA Zone 9, Sunset Zone 14, most of the Passifloras frost back somewhat in the winter, which sort of naturally curtails their vigorousness, their, their aggressive nature. Some of them, like the maypop, which is used medicinally, it's a passiflora species. That's grown all the way up into Oregon and you know, in much colder climates because it dies to the ground, but it always re-sprouts. And so that one can actually become an invasive nuisance. In frost-free zones, such as where I grew up, passifloras can go nuts. I mean, my mother planted alternating Passiflora alato ceruli and Japanese honeysuckle, Lunisera japonica, on a giant fence, uh, trellis structure all the way around their patio. They were, they had built a house in 1950 and they didn't have any money left for landscaping. And so they just built a, a, a high lattice fence and mom planted alternating Japanese honeysuckle and passion flower on that fence all the way around the patio. It developed into a vine mass eight feet or more deep over time. Uh, we lost all kinds of things in there. that <laughs> just disappeared into it. And uh, it was beautiful. It was quite spectacular. The passion flower uh, structure is fascinating. They're fragrant. They have a sweet smell. The honeysuckle, of course, smelled wonderful when it was in bloom. And after about 25 years, you know, it was time to do some re-landscaping and that needed to come out. That was a big job. Getting rid of it and continuing to get rid of it occupied much of my teenage years uh, later of digging out, grubbing out the suckers that kept trying to come up. So both of those can be very vigorous plants. But there are passifloras, passion flowers, that are less vigorous. And depending on where you're listening, you may find those in nurseries and garden centers. And the passion fruit, which is passiflora edulis, uh, at least that's the most commonly sold fruiting passion flower, passiflora edulis, is not that vigorous by comparison here. So in our, where we get a frost, it grows up, it gets onto a fence, it goes 10 or 12 feet, it's evergreen, but a lot like that bougainvillea, it frosts back so it's not functionally evergreen. On the other side, you actually get edible fruit from it. So yes, we actually can grow very tasty passion fruits off a passiflora vine in USDA zone nine. Okay, redwoodbarn.com, you'll find a what grows here link and you can read more about some of those with great detail about the passion flowers and some of the other vines we talked about. Two questions on passion flowers, Don. One is, is lily koi the same as the edible passion flower we talked about? That's the one in Hawaii. It is one of the many forms of edible passion fruit, yes. Okay. And, and the other is the Cape fritillary butterfly eats the, the leaves of a certain passion flower that's what i had here in my yard and i i shouldn't have done that because i now have it everywhere um but is that is that butterfly specific to that particular passion flower or would it it's not that particular one i get that question a lot we now have an established population of the gulf fritillary butterfly in the davis area even though it's not native here um, because they they wander in here from where they are native i guess and um they their larva food source is several species within the genus Passiflora. And uh, they don't eat all of them. They will try to oviposit on almost all of them. So one of the cool things about growing Passiflora species in the Sacramento Valley is that you'll see these butterflies all over the vines, no matter what. 
and then they overposit on some and not on others. And I've been gradually trying to build a, a list of the ones that are known to feed on, the ones that are not known, known to not feed on and in between. They do feed on the edgeless, so they do feed on the, the edible types. The downside of that is if you have one of those, I have a customer who has about a 30 foot span of passiflora on a wire fence that is supposed to screen their yard from a rather busy street. And uh, it does that, except that by the time they've had a couple populations of those Gulf fritillaries on there, there's not a lot of leaves left. <laughs> they actually really eat the foliage. And if you've ever seen a caterpillar eating foliage, they can eat quite a bit of foliage. And so they really enjoy the butterflies and they enjoy the caterpillars and they just have decided that the fact that people can see through their fence, literally because the vine is essentially functionally partially defoliated by midsummer, is acceptable to them. I've also had people bring in pictures of their passion flower vine, wondering what to do about this problem that is eating it, to say, well, I don't want to sell you a spray for a caterpillar that turns into a beautiful butterfly. Normally when they see a picture of the butterfly, they go, oh, that's cool, and they decide not to spray <laughs> for it. But the, the problem with planting larval food sources for butterflies, like Asclepias for the monarchs, like Passiflora's for the Gulf fritillary, is their larval food sources mean the larva, the caterpillars will eat the food source, which is your plant. So hopefully the plant will grow faster than it'll get eaten. I should mention one other vine, by the way, you brought it up, Aristolochia, the Dutchman's pipe. If you plant Aristolochia californica, the native Dutchman's pipe, that is the sole larval food source for the pipe vine swallowtail. It's a beautiful swallowtail butterfly that we do have in our area. Uh, it's, a, it's a shimmering black, uh, winged butterfly and it's quite lovely and there's enough people around planting those that we have established populations that pass through our garden center quite regularly because a lot of folks in East Davis have planted the pipe vine. It's not the most attractive vine. It's not easy to find. It's not particularly vigorous. So you better plant a couple of them and, and at least protect one of them while it gets going in case the the caterpillars uh, are overposited on it and defoliate it faster than it can grow, which I've had some people have experience with. But there's a, um, a homeowners and renters group in East Davis that have been methodically planting these and seeking them out and planting them. So as many people as possible in our neck of the woods there in Davis have the Aristolochia californica growing in their yards. And by doing so, there's an established population of the pipevine swallowtail. So I'll throw that one out there. But if this is a real focal point, uh, you know, it wouldn't be my first choice. I'd probably go back to one of those first ones that I mentioned. Those of you listening in frost-free zones have many more vine choices because there's lots and lots of vines that are frost tender. And uh, so you'd have a lot more to choose from. Those of you listening in zone eight or below in the USDA designations are, are probably going to focus more on deciduous vines that are hardier. And you have, of course, many choices as well. Just for one of those, I'm going to mention one that I think should be used more. Parthenocissus which is the group of Virginia creeper and Boston ivy. There's a really nice, well-mannered species in the same genus called Henriana, the silver vein uh, Parthenocissus. And I have that plant that I planted on my property. It grows in the shade as well as the sun. In fact, in our climate, it prefers shade, but it grows in the shade and it has a bigger leaf than the typical Virginia creeper, which turns a spectacular fall color. So I've let it creep all the way through one whole area of my property. And then we get this beautiful fall color on it. It's one of the first things to turn color in the fall here. And then if it climbs up on a tree or something, I just pull it down. It's not ever become a nuisance yet <laughs> compared to many other vines that I've planted. If it becomes a nuisance, I'll update this show. Two questions. Again, you know, every time you talk, I come up with questions. Uh, 
So this one has to do with your friends who are trying to screen that street yeah. and the caterpillars eating leaves. What about interplanting that with something that is a summer uh, thing like, I don't know, scarlet runner beans or something, something beans that would be on the, on the structure, would they cohabitate? They would. You would end up at the end of the season with um, an annual vine that you would have a lot of difficulty pulling out of there. <clears throat> so it would end up looking pretty shaggy in the wintertime, whereas, you know, when you do your scarlet runner beans, which are a great summer annual bean, um, annual flower, happens to have an edible bean as well. Uh, you can just pull it down at the end of the season. If it's growing up on another plant, that could be quite a, quite a tangle and wouldn't be terribly attractive. But there are, you can interplant vines up to a point. Um, one that we sell a lot, the Australian Bluebell Creeper, which I think only goes to our zone in terms of cold hardiness. Solia, S-O-L-L-Y-A, Fusiformis, or heterophylla, I see it sold under both names, appear to be synonyms. Australian bluebell creeper is one of the most well-mannered vines I've ever met. I was first introduced to it when uh, I worked in a garden center in uh, Pacific Beach, San Diego area, where we had a whole special issue of what grows under eucalyptus trees, because <laughs> not much does. Uh, eucalyptus trees, of course, down there were widely planted at the beginning of the 20th century in a bunch of failed uh, timber schemes, and they never turned out to be a good timber species. But all those eucalyptus were still down there and they built houses among them, uh, you know, housing subdivisions. And a lot of people had yards that had big eucalyptus trees. And it is a fact that not much would grow underneath a eucalyptus tree for a bunch of reasons. Well, simple answer, go back to Australia, find something that grows there underneath eucalyptus trees. And they did that. Salia heterophylla, Australian bluebell creeper, does grow under eucalyptus trees, can trail as a ground cover or make a vine that grows a foot or two a year twining up onto whatever structure you give it, shiny leaf, dense enough to make a complete privacy screen, but never overwhelming in, to the point where you have to prune it back all the time. So when you have a big vine that runs up to the top of a structure, but it's bare down below, you can plant solia, which is shade tolerant or sun tolerant, at the base of that, and it will cover up the bare stems and cover up the lower part of the fence. I've had people do this quite regularly, and they just clip it a little bit. It twines on whatever you provide support for. You know, it, it twines on a wire structure. It'll twine on the other vine if it has to. And in five years, it might get to the top of the fence. So it's a very manageable way to get that privacy while you still have the other vine giving you the more glorious flowers that they might have or whatever other feature you're growing them for. And Salia has a lovely little nodding blue flower. That's where the name comes from, the bluebell creeper. Uh, and quite great profusion for a few weeks each season. And then the rest of the year, you have this shiny evergreen vine. I didn't mention it earlier because it wouldn't really get to the top of her arbor structure within you know a decade, but it would certainly do a job of covering the lower part. Okay, so she had a second question, and yep. this is, I have an arch, this is the arbor structure Don was talking about, that I have installed for vertical vegetable plantings, such as spaghetti squash and melons. The arch is made up of steel tubing, and it could hold up to 70 pounds. Instead of leaving it bare over the winter, what would you suggest for winter vines? And that's where my, my idea comes in of plant a winter vegetable that's a vine. Don't we have some of those, like the, peas or something? Uh, peas, yes. Peas and sweet peas are the classic. There aren't as many winter vining plants as there are summer vining plants, but a good vigorous stand of sweet peas will certainly go uh, six or seven feet up with no problem and give you spectacular blooms right now. They grow, you plant them here in our zone in our, and hers. You plant them in the fall 
and they grow up and they start to bloom. They grow very vigorously when we hit February. Suddenly you realize, oh, those vines are really taking off. They'll go six or seven feet with no problem. In the case of the older sweet peas and regular garden peas, don't get them mixed up. <laughs> Keep them separated. Um, and uh, then they'll bloom until we get hot, dry, and windy, usually sometime in May, which is kind of a signal that it's time to plant your summer vegetables. So peas are actually a very good alternate plant for the summer vegetables. We don't have as many other summer vi winter vining type of edibles, so that would be probably the one choice there. As for the things that are gonna go on this structure, the fact is the significant percentage of the things we grow in the summer are vines. And uh, some of them are vines that we allow to run across the ground like pumpkins. Uh, tomatoes will happily do the same thing. They're not a vine truly, but they, they function like one. Cucumbers are particularly good to get up off the ground that way. I've done it with melons. I'm always worried when we get a north wind here, you know, that the thing isn't gonna hang on, but they got pretty sturdy stems. I would say your cantaloupe might be a disaster because when they're ripe, they detach. So you may go out and find it's fallen to the ground and split open. But um, smaller melons, this is a group that everybody should look into. The Charente is a good example. It would fit in the palm of your hand. It's uh, the size of a large tennis ball and or maybe let's say a, a croquet ball. And they're extremely aromatic and they, they make an amazing amount of fruit in a small area as long as you go up anyway. And uh, that's a, a melon that could be easily trained up just like a cucumber and give you a nice long season of these amazing single serving size, that's what they're calling them in the seed catalogs, single serving melon. And uh, they, they're extremely sweet and do very, very well. And the Charente is an heirloom one that's been around for quite a while, but there's a bunch of new ones. And so these are smaller melons that you could easily grow up onto a structure. So for those of you listening in areas where you've got limited space, look into some of those. Generally, we don't plant them until end of May. You know, they really need warm soil, so you've got plenty of time to order the seed from your seed company or, or see if your local nursery is going to have them. And uh, they're certainly an option. And my main use of, of vertical melon squash family member vine spaces cucumbers because that's a great way to get them up off the ground and get high yield from them so the winter is a little bit more of a challenge i think peas are your answer there but in the summer you got lots of choices and we did spaghetti squash which worked very well it didn't automatically detach it was quite sturdy yeah. no the only and one that does the, the, as far as the cantaloupe go you can make a sling yeah. that you tie up so that it doesn't fall it's, yeah. you know, it's a little bit extra work yeah that but was my the, uh, that was my very 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 first paid employment mm -hmm. was hanging <laughs> cantaloupes in <laughs> slings in a greenhouse in san diego I don't recommend that particular job, but <laughs> it was a good experience. <laughs> and as far as squirrel problems, I know if, 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 if I put my tomatoes out with nothing around them, the squirrels will get to them and eat them all. Will they eat the cantaloupes and the other melons? Yes, <laughs> okay. probably, yeah. yeah. I don't think they get the beans though. So if I had a west facing wall and wanted to, to shade it, I'd probably put up a, a trellis and put uh, scarlet runner beans on it. I think beans are probably your best choice because they'll outproduce <laughs> the rate at which squirrels can eat them. I certainly won't make any promises about them not eating them because <laughs> they seem to be pretty indiscriminate, but uh, yeah. Okay, okay. I, have one, I have one last short question before we get to our landscape coefficient uh, segment. Is the Fuyu persimmon the same as the Fuyugaki persimmon? 
Yes, apparently. Um, I heard you, that term used. We've abbreviated that to Fuyu for years. Fuyu is by far the best-selling persimmon in California. It's the one that you can eat while it's still firm. And that appears to just be an abbreviation for Fuyugaki, which is... Uh, now, this is important uh, to some people. There's more than one strain of what's called Fuyu. And in California, we only sell and grow one particular one. I think it's called Imara, but I can't remember for sure. In Japan and uh, other places where persimmons are more widely grown with greater diversity, there's a couple strains. And so that matters to people. And the giant fuyu is not a type of fuyu. It's just a similar persimmon that's bigger that you also can eat while it's still firm. Persimmons, as you probably know if you've ever grown them, majority of them are very astringent. That means they pucker your mouth. It's like the effect is like licking a shag carpet is the way I once saw it described. Um, <laughs> if they're astringent types, but there have always been non-astringent persimmons. So an astringent type, such as hachia, has to be squishy, soft, pulpy, ripe before you can eat it at all. Uh, and uh, if you ever bite into an astringent persimmon, it's an interesting experience and you'll certainly never do it again. Um, they have to actually almost encounter frost. We don't harvest our hachia persimmons here until December. So we've had some very cold weather that has embarked the plant on the process of essentially almost beginning to ferment the fruit so it becomes pulpy and edible. And then it's one of the sweetest persimmons you've ever had. And if you like to bake with them or cook with persimmons, you should probably plant one of those. But everybody else, and I would say um, at least on the basis of the way I sell them, it's about a 10 to 1 ratio prefer a persimmon you can walk out there when it turns color in October and really bright orange in late October, November, pluck it off the tree and eat it like an apple. That's the fuyu, the flat bottom persimmon that you can eat while it's still firm and has and is not astringent. Well, I think it's time to get started on our big talk for this session, and that's that landscape coefficient thing. Shall I start reading Eric's letter? Yeah. Uh, I must apologize for not writing more, but I've been in the midst of a project for a few years that have occupied my time immensely. And recently I've run into a stumbling block that needs some attention and perhaps assistance from the two of you. At least I hope. It involves landscape or crop coefficients. My question is a simple one. Researching a bit on my own, it seems that crop coefficients are an opinion or an experience rather than a definite number. The plants included in the WUCOLS list seem to be available in only a scarce selection for the crop factor category, not just low, medium, and high. I guess I expected a number. A range of percentages defining the cutoffs from low to high seems a little vague. Is there a list or a database with specific numbers? Is there a range that's available for now? I'd appreciate some direction on this issue. Thank yeah. you, Eric, for writing. And the first thing I'll say is, what the heck is a landscape or crop coefficient? Yeah, the uh, website, for those of you who want to research this in more detail, UC has, has consolidated almost all of their ag and home garden information, as well as a lot of other stuff, at ucanr.edu. That's University of California Agricultural, uh, Agricultural Natural Resources or something like that. UCANR.edu. We always used to mention ipm.ucdavis.edu. That'll get, that'll, that'll get you there. They, they forward the link. Wukols, as we call it, <clears throat> Wukols 
<clears throat> water use classification of landscape species, why not just say wukols, is uh, up to its fourth iteration now. It's based on the premise that we can determine, or we can say based on a simple model of looking at a plant, that every species in every situation uses a, an amount of water on a daily basis that can be described as being proportional somehow to the water use that is part of the definition of evapotranspiration. That was a long sentence. Evapotranspiration is the rate at which you apply water to plants. It's ET, evaporation from the surface and transpiration through the plant. So when I say to you, your lawn needs one inch of water two times a week, what the heck is an inch of water? Well, the 0.62 gallons per square foot. That's just a data point you need to know. And when I'm saying one inch of water two times a week, that's based on field studies that have shown us that roughly the evapotranspiration rate for, for turf in our area, in our climate, the hot, dry Sacramento Valley, is just about two inches of water a week. And I can tell you how many gallons of water that is if I know how many square feet you're talking about. But I can also tell you that's what you need to apply. So we often talk about measuring an inch of water. It's a literal inch of water, like rainfall comes in a literal inch. What that measures to is 0.62 gallons per square foot is an inch of water. So if you've got a thousand square foot lawn, which would be a fairly small lawn by most residential standards, that is using each time you water, if you're following this old rule we used to use, 620 gallons of water on a thousand square feet twice a week, 1,280 gallons of water per week. And I would almost always start during the drought my talks with that, that a slide that showed that. Uh, and I'd say, now remember, that's a thousand square feet. Average lawn in our area, Davis, where there's sort of typical fifth acre lots for the most part, uh, average lawn is in the 2,000 square foot range. So double that total amount of water. You're trying to figure out how to keep your water rates, your water uh, cost down. You can see where most of it's going. And I remember giving this talk down in one of the uh, country club communities that's south of town. And a guy came up to me afterwards that I've known for quite a long time and said, well, just so you know, Don, my lawn's 10,000 square feet. So he was using a lot of water every week to keep that lawn looking good. And that's if he was following the guidelines. A lot of people water way more than that. It was long ago observed that any plant uh, can be roughly, and with some precision actually, set as to how much water it uses compared to a lawn. And so that's the coefficient. If you take, if a lawn is 100% ET, because you can look up the evapotranspiration rate at those websites, those weather sites we've talked about, I can tell you that your Japanese maple is, it's close to the same use as a lawn. We always say that it's about 90%. <clears throat> and you can use that if you're putting in drip irrigation systems, counting up the number of emitters that, that Japanese maple is going to need uh, at some stage of its growth. And you can figure out, all right, how will I give it 90% of what a lawn would be using on a weekly basis? Of course, you're asking a bunch of questions. How often am I gonna run it and so forth? But it helps you figure out how many gallons would that need compared to a lawn. And the example I usually show, because I happen to have a nice picture each of my blood good Japanese maple and my purple smoke bush, about the same age. So they're both about, at the time I took the picture, about 10 by 10. Because the amount of water used by a plant is proportional to the surface area of its foliage. So this is an important consideration, but they're about the same of these two that I have. Now my smoke bush is down by my mailbox and it's in full sun, literally from sunrise to sunset. There's a roadbed nearby and it's in a dry water part of my landscape. 
Japanese maple is only about 300 feet up the long driveway, but it's in the light shade of a sycamore, as it should be. It's in a landscape that's got ground covers underneath it, and uh, it's, it's sheltered from the afternoon sun. But they're about the same size. And looking on the Wukol's data years ago, uh, I found that uh, the Japanese maple was a coefficient was about 90%. It needed about 90% of the water that a lawn would need in that same square footage of canopy. And the smoke bush, Cotinus cogigria, was about 30%. Okay, it only needed 30% of the water that a lawn would need in, given its canopy area, uh, because it's a much more drought tolerant plant. So functionally, it's a way of telling us where a species is on the spectrum of water use in their most conditions. And this does raise an interesting issue. These were derived from the original models for crops. For an almond tree, they can just say, all right, if we keep dropping the amount of water used, because almonds got a little bit of bad publicity a few years ago for the amount of water they hypothetically could use and that a lot of farmers were doing, a lot of farmers were watering their almonds as if they were lawns. I mean, they are giving them literally that much water. Their landscape coefficient was 100%. Um, if we drop that 10%, does that affect yield? If we drop it 20%, does that affect yield? 30%, 40%. Some farmers in some parts of California are subject occasionally to significant water cutbacks if they're on the state water project. What happens if you have an almond orchard and the state water project says you're only going to get 10% of your allotment this year and it costs you a lot of money to pump water out of the ground and you decide, okay, I'm going to give this tree 30% of what it needs by our original definition. Will you lose the crop? Yes. Will you lose the tree? No. So in the case of a farmer, it's quantified. They lose money at a certain point. So they go, okay, well, I don't want to lose money, but I'm happy to conserve water. I can go to 80% instead of 100%. Hey, look, I still get the same yield. So a crop coefficient is easy. It's a pocketbook issue. You know, if you, if you don't water your walnuts enough, you'll make less money on them. That's pretty simple and straightforward. Well, you don't make money on your Japanese maple. You don't make money on your smoke bush. It's a subjective consideration. So this is the first issue with use of this data. Um, we're saying, how low can you go before it affects the appearance of the plant or the vigor of the plant or ultimately the health and safety of the plant? You know, is, are you actually gonna water your Japanese maple at 50% of what it would, at least in theory, prefer? What's gonna happen if you do that? Well, we know it'll happen. We, it won't grow as well that year. It'll get sunburned and so forth, but it won't die. So in a severe drought, you can, as we found in the first five years of this past decade we just went through with that profound drought that lasted several years, you can go well below the Wukol's um, landscape coefficient. You can water it at 50% instead of 90%. The plant will eke its way through. I see this done, by the way, all the time to crepe myrtles. Probably the best example I can give. They will bloom best if you water them more especially when the blooms are developing and the buds are expanding and it's getting ready to flower. They'll survive in a low water landscape and they'll bloom okay. So I don't know where they've put them. I haven't looked it up recently on the Wukol's data. Are they a 90% plant or a 70% plant or a 50% plant? But in a drought emergency, we can water them less. The bloom won't be as abundant, but the plant will be okay. It'll just stop growing a little earlier, but that'll be fine. It'll make it through. So the, the one drawback that has been mentioned repeatedly with this particular uh, model is that it is subjective, but they did develop a rather extensive method of doing this. So the first, um, we're all the way up to the fourth iteration of Wukols now, we're on Wukols 4, W-U-C-O-L-S is all you need to Google if you want to find this. 
They've uh, looked at about 3,500 different uh, plants, uh, taxa, taxonomic plant groups used in California landscapes. It's on a, a panel of horticulture professionals, 36 of them right now on their, on their committee, regional committees, regional committees because the, the state differs. You know, you can water a Japanese maple a lot less in, in uh, Pacifica or, or Santa Cruz than here in the Sacramento Valley. And um, they use, they have, by, based on their observation, they get together in committees, they go through a list of plants, they come to a consensus about the different plants in the group, and they assign them a place on that percentage spectrum. So the thing Eric is running into is that seems a little subjective, and indeed it does, but it's subjective based on informed guesses or direct observation. They also have actually established a couple of test experiment gardens where they water a certain amount and they also like to test new introductions into the landscape uh, trade in those. And there's one here at UC Davis, very convenient. And you'll find uh, pictures and updates from that posted periodically on Facebook. And it's a very cool little display garden where they just test these things, give them a certain amount of water on, let's say, three different amounts of water over the course of the summer, 70%, 50%, 30%, if they're trying to figure out if it's actually as drought tolerant as it's being touted, and see how it does. And they these these local panel observes them, makes notes, and then they come up with an a actual credible answer for how much water that plant needs. Well, can you possibly do this with every plant in the nursery trade? No, unfortunately you can't. I think that's enough for one show on this topic and uh, there's more to discuss. So tune in next week for part two, the water use coefficient of landscape species discussion here at Davis Garden Show. We'll try to make it more practical and see how you can use this basic information as you plan and develop your landscape and garden. So next week, it will be April. I think we should start talking seriously about tomatoes. And so we will methodically, in the month of April, talk about tomatoes from where they come from to how you use them, to which ones are best. So if you've got questions about tomatoes, if you've had problems with tomatoes in your garden, wherever you're listening, think of those questions, uh, find old pictures you took of the problems, and you can email those to davisgardenshow at gmail.com. We'll incorporate those into our discussion because while we're at tomato planting season, the very beginning of it here in the Sacramento Valley in USDA Zone 9, Sunset Zone 14, I know that a lot of people are a few weeks away. And so this would be a good time to plan ahead, get your area ready, figure out what you're going to plant, figure out how you're going to grow it, and what's going to give you the best results in your area. Maybe we can help you with that. You've been listening to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRT LP 95.7 in Davis, California.